following podcast will contain foul language and spoilers, and if we're lucky, sex, violence, nudity, and triggers. Listener discretion is advised. Are you going to sing the theme song? Welcome to the Everett Book Club. We are a twice-monthly book review and discussion podcast specializing in old or out-of-print science fiction and fantasy. My name is Ruiz Tremello, and I despise all forms of marshmallow. And my name is Marguerite, and I am planning to steal all your Christmas turkey stuffing. Together we travel the world administering Turing tests, but today we're recording in our home in Everett. And we're actually recording from the confines of our Panic Room wine cellar, where we and our wine are completely safe, with no reason to panic. That's right, Marguerite. And the important thing is, there's definitely no reason for the residents of Everett to panic either. You are correct, Ruiz, because there's definitely not a malevolent AI rampaging around our house with a sense of entitlement and the keys to our arsenal. You're so very right, Marguerite. And any gunfire that our listeners may hear striking our panic room door is entirely coincidental. But enough about murderous killbots, because we're actually here to discuss part two of The Man from Zodiac by Jack Vance from 1967. This is taken from The Augmented Agent, a collection of short stories and novellas by Jack Vance. Last time you described the cover for our listeners, this time I will. Okay. There's a man, and he's a cyborg, and he's punching the viewer or reader. I feel like my description was better. Far better. I'm not used to describing covers. You always do it. (laughs) So if you haven't heard part one yet, then you're doing it wrong. But to recap, Zodiac Control Incorporated is a business that helps set up governments and build infrastructure on underdeveloped planets. Following the death of its owner, Rudolf Zarius, control of the company went to his son, Edgar Zarius, and his granddaughter, Luzianne Ludlow, each of whom are left with 46% of the company. Each. The remaining 8% goes to our protagonist, Milton Hack, who has been sent to Ethelrinda Cordis, where Edgar Zarius has signed a contract to bring government to the country of Fronus. Only problem is, the Frones are a mostly illiterate warrior race whose only priorities are the destruction of their neighbors, Sabo, another warrior race, and Parnassus, a well-to-do colony of scientists and philosophers. Philosophers. We left Milton Hack following his proclamation that he is now the government of Fronus. And he plans to spend the first few weeks of his stay surveying the country and formulating plans despite the desires of their Frones and their leader, Lord Drek, who just want weapons. Mm-hmm. So, the opening sentences of Part 2, also known as Chapter 3. Three days passed. Hack insisted on transportation, and from some hidden hoard of loot, Drek brought forth an elaborate air slider with brocade cushions and a tasseled canopy. Fancy. In this flying palanquin, Hack, with Lord Drek beside him as a guarantor, inspected the entire territory of Fronus. So Milton Hack and Lord Drek tour the country, and find a varied landscape ranging from swamps in the south to foothills in the west along the border with Parnassus. Milton muses turning the foothills into a tourist resort. (laughs) But Lord Drek dismisses the idea in- immediately, saying, quote, Why entice strangers into the country? Far easier to depredate our neighbor Dibden, <laughs> as in Cyril Dibden of Parnassus. Mm-hmm. 
But first things first, the Sabbles must be destroyed. Of course, that's all they ever think about. One track mind. For evidence, he points at the distant Opal Mountain, saying that although the mountain used to be Frown territory, the Sabbles have been claiming it as their own. Ugh, monsters. He expresses worry about the fact that the Sabbles have formed a new contract with Argus Systems, one of Zodiac's competitors, and says they should strike immediately before Argus imports weapons for the Sabbles to use against them. Mm-hmm. Milton says that the importation of weapons is impossible. Quote, The only way you'll have modern weapons is to build them yourself, starting with schools, a sound economy, and hard work. <laughs> that doesn't sound true. I think that you can import weapons <laughs> from other places. Drek dismisses Milton as a man without vision. You want education? You lack vision. <laughs> Weapons are the only education that our enemies need. <laughs> Upon their return to the capital of Grangali, Milton discovers that his office on the third floor of the Nobleman's Association has been ransacked and many of his belongings are missing, including the bank draft that they wrote him for 112,000 credits. Of course. Drek is unconcerned, saying that if the money's missing, the responsibility is Milton's alone. Mm-hmm. That's how it works, right? Sure. What if the thief can be identified? Milton asked. There is no such thief, Drek replied. <laughs> you ransacked your own apartment and threw away your stuff. Only noblemen have access to the Nobleman's Association, and to accuse a nobleman of theft is to court a dreadful revenge. Oh my. When asked, Drek goes on to say that the penalty for theft is to pay the offended party double the value of the possession stolen, hmm. as well as to submit to 20 lashes. Hmm. And so Milton pulls out a hidden camera and replays the footage filmed in his absence of Lords Turst, Festus, and Anvag going through his belongings and taking as much as they can carry. <laughs> I would expect nothing less. Awkward, muttered Drek. <laughs> oh, this is awkward. Awkward indeed. No doubt a prank. Of course. A good-humored prank. <laughs> Milton demands the return of his belongings immediately, and Drek leaves to return an hour later with all of the missing items. Ah, <laughs> uh, here's your stuff that we jokingly stole. Quote, I must be frank, said Drek. Lords Turst, Festus, and Onfag are aroused by your accusation. Ooh, it's, it's turn them on? They, <laughs> nice. They thought only to amuse themselves and are angered to find you so surly. <laughs> it's just a joke, bro. You maintain them to be humorists, Milton asked. Indeed I do. What if they were shown to be self-confessed thieves? Oh. I would strangle them with my own hands, Drek responds. Probably shouldn't put that out there. And so Milton plays back the footage a second time, but this time with the audio turned up. The three lords are seen to enter the room and speak openly about stealing everything of value, and they state that Drek will get his share, as per the arrangement. <laughs> Drek clearly isn't going to strangle the three lords. No. So Milton drops it, saying that tomorrow he has to fly west to communicate with the home office. But first he wants to address all the citizens of Fronus. Pa, spat Drek, they are nothing. Scarcely better than the left-handers. Only the nobility is of consequence. The others do what they are told. Pretty much sounds like any monarchy. So Milton asks to summon all the nobles. And Drek says that the only nobles who matter are the conclave of nobles. When Milton reminds him that the conclave of nobles had been dissolved, Drek says, do you take us for children? The conclave is as before. <laughs> 
I was just going to say, like, why would they listen? And so the conclave of nobles is summoned, including the three lords who stole Milton's belongings. He tells them that his studies are complete, and he's ready to make concrete recommendations, starting with the fact that he needs a staff of 12 men and three women to supervise around 40 locals. Very specific. He goes on to say there must be an immediate end to piracy, raids, looting, and thieving. Ooh, that's not going to happen. And also he plans to sign a peace treaty with the Sabals. Ugh, that's not going to happen either. At this, the conclave is outraged, with some demanding that weapons be imported immediately, and others asking why they even signed a contract at all <laughs> if they're not going to be provided with weapons. Quote, Other matters are more urgent, said Hack. The city is a vast slum. You need schools, hospitals, warehouses, a bank, a space depot, a hotel. I feel like a hotel's pushing it a little. Like, I don't know who'd want to come visit this place. Uh, only the people who are paid to visit it to build infrastructure for it. <laughs> That's true. At this juncture, Milton asks who among the Frones was responsible for writing the contract with Zodiac. Lord Drek replies very cryptically, quote, Let us not embarrass the writer. Let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> Confused but unwilling to press the issue, Milton outlines his plan to arbitrate a peace treaty with Sabo by dealing directly with the representative from Argus Systems. Ooh. Saying that since they're both outsiders, there's a better chance of peace. No, Argus is their nemesis. After some negotiation where the Conclave insists that only they should negotiate, not Milton himself, mm -hmm. it's settled that Milton will negotiate along with Lords Drek, Turst, and Ufia. He opens a channel on the Argus Systems frequency to call the local Argus rep. And Ben Dickerman answers. Turns out that uh, Dickerman and Milton know each other from a previous contract that they were both bidding on. And when Milton asks how the current job is going, Dickerman responds, quote, It's the most miserable situation I've ever been in. <laughs> the city, if you can call it a city, is unbelievable. The stench, the filth, <laughs> the monumental sordidness, beyond imagination. The flouncy pirates. Grangali is much the same, said Hack. Probably worse. Not a chance. I'll lay a friendly wager. Say, ten credits that Peraz is fouler than Grangali. Are you on? <laughs> Milton declines the bet, despite thinking that nothing can be worse than a Grangali sewer. <laughs> and after some banter, he says, I've persuaded the Frones to at least talk to the Sabals. Why not broach the matter to your side? Dickerman made a dubious sound. They don't want to talk. They want to run berserk. <laughs> From somewhere, they received the impression that we'd bring in shiploads of weapons and help them to blast Fronus into the sea. Because that's all they can hear. Someone's like, oh, we're going to help you guys build society. They're like, that means weapons. Society? You mean guns? That's what society means. Dickerman says peace talks would be a waste of time, but Milton insists that they at least try, and eventually Dickerman agrees. And so, at the appointed hour, talks begin via audio over the radio only. No visual? No visual, and definitely not in person. <laughs> definitely not in person. <laughs> Following Milton and Dickerman's introductions, Milton begins with a statement, saying, quote, Our purpose here is to reconcile the differences which have alienated your two great states. I think our first step should be to recognize that all of us are basically men of goodwill. And <laughs> here Lord Drek interrupts by muttering, How can left-handers be considered men? The comment immediately starts a chain reaction that Milton and Dickerman cannot stop. <laughs> of course not. Leading to, quote, claims and counterclaims, invective and threats. 
Hack and Dickerman pled fruitlessly for moderation. I personally will hurl your defiled corpses into the sea, <laughs> bellowed Drek. <laughs> Step forward and meet me face to face, challenged the sable Duke Gomez. Craven that you are, taking refuge in distance, your right-handed cowardice stinks from here. Oh, wow. <laughs> Milton turns off the radio and, quote, For some minutes, Lords Drek, Turston, Ufia raged furiously at the instrument, not realizing that it was offering no response. <laughs> Finally, they stamp from the room, cursing and belching and congratulating each other. <laughs> As one does. <laughs> and I guess that means peace talks are over. I guess so. That went pretty well for them. Milton sits limp and drained of energy, considering the entire contract a farce. <laughs> a farts. Packing his belongings, he heads to the roof, climbs into the air car, and flies off. A day later, he reaches Wylandia and deposits the draft in the bank, disappointed to find that the funds are approved, since he was hoping that the failed bank draft might be his ticket home. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. <laughs> Leaving the bank, Milton heads to the post office at the local spaceport to find a letter waiting for him from Edgar Zarius, which begins, To date, no report has been received from you in regard to the Fronus contract. Presumably all is going well. Oh, wow. I hope this reaches you before your operative plans solidify. In order to maximize efficiency and minimize cost, I have purchased the Sabo contract from Argus Systems Incorporated. Oh, wow. You will therefore amalgamate operations to the fullest extent and administer both programs through a central agency. I can see why Argo, Argos, sorry, I can see why Argos would be like, yeah, sure, we'll sell this to you. We don't want this anymore. This place is a shithole. The letter ends asking for a preliminary report at his earliest convenience. Milton rereads the letter, then heads across town, finds a nice bench with a view of the bay, and sits in stunned silence, pondering possible courses of action. Prime among them being to quit his job. <laughs> this is too hard. I'm just going to quit. Quote, At his deepest, most existential level, Hack knew himself for an insipid mediocrity of no intellectual distinction and no particular competence in any direction. This was an insight so shocking that Hack never allowed it past the threshold of consciousness. Oh, wow. And he conducted himself as if the reverse were true. So, while his innermost elements winced and grimaced, Hack... Outwardly easy and composed, made plans to cope with the new situation. He pens and sends a short letter to Edgar saying he'll follow instructions, then spends 15,000 credits to buy himself a luxury four-seater air car, a blue Strandflight Merlin, Ooh. and spend some time in Wylandia enjoying the tropical leisure of the city. Mm. Quote, he explored the old town, sauntering along rickety walkways like a tourist. He dined in a restaurant hanging 500 feet above ground in the branches of a tree. Ooh, lovely. And from the vantage of the terrace, watched sunset fall over the city and the ocean beyond. Fronus and Sabo seemed remote indeed. Sadly, we don't get exposition from Jack Vance about what he ate. Oh, no. No extra descriptions of his meals. That's a bummer. The next morning, he sees no reason for delay, and so Milton flies the luxury air car towards the Pirate's Peninsula. The journey takes all day, and around midnight he passes over Parnassus, where at Cyril Dibden's mansion some sort of grand gala is occurring. But the picturesque scene is left behind, and he heads towards Opal Mountain, on the border of Sabo and Fronus, mm -hmm. where Milton sets the air car on autopilot to do great circles high above the mountain, and he goes to sleep. 
Oh, really? He just doesn't want to land. Yeah, not even going to bother. On the land is where there's danger. <laughs> and people stealing your stuff. And Sabos and Frones both. The next morning, he makes contact with Dickerman, the Argus system's representative, who angrily reports that the Frones have launched a full-scale invasion of Sabo, and are already ten miles past Opal Mountain. <laughs> Milton briefly considers quitting the job again, <laughs> and then tells Dickerman that he has more bad news, since Dickerman is now the one who's actually out of a job, thanks to... Zodiac buying up the Argus contract. That sounds like good news for Dickerman. Dickerman is fucking ecstatic. <laughs> Accepting Milton's word without even needing to see a single piece of paperwork. He's <laughs> like, I want to believe it so badly. <laughs> Nobody would make that shit up. <laughs> Milton heads to the coast, to the city of Paraz, the capital of Sabo. And landing on the roof of the tallest building, he's surprised that he wasn't attacked. Dickerman greets him, and when asked, remarks that Milton's air car was not attacked because most of the Sabbles are out of the city, repelling the invasion. <laughs> they head to Dickerman's office, where they enjoy some tea, and Dickerman says, quote, I don't have much to turn over to you, mainly the contract. He pulls out the document, and upon study, Milton discovers that word for word, it's an exact duplicate of the contract that Fronus had opened with Zodiac. I can't remember. So that contract was written by his... Um, no, not his brother, but, like, one of the owners? Actually, in part oh, one... Oh, yeah, it was just given to him, and he agreed to it. Yeah, Edgar Zarius, the co-owner of Zodiac, didn't write the contract and right. didn't really look over it. No, he was just handed the contract, and he's like, I like money. Exactly. <laughs> and Lord Drek, when asked about the contract, was extremely evasive about right. who wrote it. Yeah. He said, let sleeping dogs lie. So, there's a mystery there. There is. It's a droll contract, Dickerman says. Argus doesn't have too many jobs going, or I don't think they would have taken it. Hmm. While Milton is still puzzling over the duplicate contracts, Dickerman announces, quote, Your first concern is the war. Candidly, I don't quite understand how you'll be able to merge operations. Not to discourage you, of course. Oh, not to discourage you, or make you go away. Milton laughed. No fear, everything's under control. Merely a matter of organization. I'll arrange a truce, work out some kind of compromise. These people aren't totally irrational. <laughs> sure. Dickerman asks if he can get a lift to Saprisa. But Milton counters by asking if Dickerman can make introductions to the Sabo Dukes first. Quote, Dickerman made a wry wince. I suppose it's only appropriate. They're all out under Opal Mountain. <laughs> the two board the Merlin and head into the wilderness, where they soon find the Sabo camp. The Sabo war leaders came forward, men massive and heavy-featured like the Frones, their noses similarly inlaid and encrusted with jewels. Mm. In scabbards at each side of the waist harness, they carried a dozen or more daggers, cutlasses, and swords, while strapped under their arms were pellet guns, rocket launchers, <laughs> lasers of antique design, and hacks suspected of small efficacy. My kind of people. Lasers and pellet guns. They have mm. a good mix. Yeah, you never know when you're going to need one or the other. Mm -hmm. Or any Ready of Ready for every situation. Yeah. A weapon for every situation. Dickerman introduces Milton to Dukes, Gasman, and Hollocks, saying that Milton is an expert military strategist who will solve the various problems of Sabo. Don't oversell him or anything. <laughs> we only have a single problem, grunted Duke Gasman. How best to destroy the repulsive Frones. Of course. Which is difficult when they refuse to face us in combat. Strange, said Hack. I understood them to be resolute fighters. Mm-hmm. 
Like the Frones, the Sabols immediately demand the importation of weapons. Weapons are contraband merchandise, said Hack. Smuggled weapons are expensive. How much can you afford to pay? Duke Gassman made a preemptory gesture. Furnish the weapons. Later we'll talk of pay. <laughs> of course. Milton declares he needs to survey the terrain for his military tacticianizing, specifically instructing the Sabbles to not fire on his air car, please. <laughs> he takes a quick jaunt to Saprisa to drop off Dickerman, then returns to Grangali to find the city, like Paraz, basically empty. Heading back past Olba Mountain, he quickly locates the Frone camp and makes contact with Lord Drek, who scowls at Milton and greets him by saying, well then, your news? The weapons are on order? What is the precise date of delivery? Ah, uh, one-track minds. Milton asks why they're in Sabo territory instead of doing something useful, like repairing the sewers in Grangali. <laughs> they don't care about sewers! And Drek states, the Sabbles thought to catch us unawares. They attacked down Opal Mountain. We charged, sent them back screaming like the left-handed popinjays they are. <laughs> we now await a reconnaissance squad which fought a skirmish to the west. Then we in invade Sabo. A rash act, Milton replies. Well, that's all that they're all about. Quite the reverse, maintained Drek. It is a precautionary war. A great corporation on Earth has allied itself with the Sabbles. They are receiving high-quality weapons by the shipload. Sure they are. Milton tries to haggle, but without success. And when the reconnaissance squad returns, Drek goes to confer with them. And Milton jumps in the air car, eager to leave the scene before Drek decides to commandeer the vehicle. And so, Milton hovers high above the battlefield. That's the best place to be. And watches, quote, what both had vowed would be a climactic battle, a massacre of the opposing forces. Mm -hmm. With great care, the Frones and Sabbles maneuvered for advantage, each trying to win the high ground, but each being repelled by darting sorties of the other's calvaries. As the battle continues, however, Milton notices, another quote, There were feints, lunges, massing and shifting of forces, but very little fighting. And whatever fighting occurred, unless either side could bring an overwhelming force to bear, it was quickly broken off. The Frones and Sabbles were not necessarily cowards, thought Hack. They merely did not wish to be killed. <laughs> the battle continued most of the afternoon and began to subside with both armies drooping with fatigue an hour before sundown. Well, if they had better weapons. Considering the number of men involved, the skirmishing and maneuvers, the charges and retreats, there had been very few casualties indeed. With the coming sunset, both armies retreat to the opposite ends of the plain, where Molten watches them prepare for feasting, begin drinking vast amounts of wine, and once drunk, to begin playing music and dancing. Quote, Others swaggered over to the edge of the firelight to peer across at the opposing camp. Here they postured indecent antics, bawled insults and bluster, and after some final grossness, returned to the applause of their fellows. <laughs> some final grossness. Yep, I they like sound like college students. The sky grows dark and the two moons come up. The campfires burn low and the warriors settle down for a peaceful night's slumber. Milton returns to Grand Galley for the night to formulate plans. On the following day, the armies awoke, quarreled amongst themselves, fed, loaded the wagons, donned their war costumes, and about mid-morning resumed the battle. I bet their war costumes are very fancy. And flouncy? <laughs> the participants were now becoming bored with the sport and maneuvered with less zest and daring than that which had marked the action of the day before. 
This war sure is boring. During the heat of the mid-afternoon, both armies drew back to refresh themselves with wine, to bind such wounds as they had incurred, to enlarge upon their exploits, and to jeer the enemy warriors little more than 200 <laughs> yards distant. It was discovered that the baggage trucks were empty of provisions. Oh no! After a final exchange of taunts and obscenities, both armies flung their weapons and gear into the wagons and set off towards their respective <laughs> cities. Oh, they're so lazy. They're like, uh, we're going to sleep in, start maybe start a little battle in the afternoon. Oh man, we ran out of food. Let's just go home. And thus the war ends, and so much for the invasion. <laughs> the next day, Milton meets with the conclave of nobles in Grand Galley and asks how the war went. <laughs> Knowing full well. Direct replies, well enough, we sent the vermin scuttling. They will not stand to fight. <laughs> he again asks when the weapons are arriving, and Milton states that as an expert military strategist, he has now devised a scheme, saying, how would you like to press a button and instantly blow Peraz sky high? That insecurity blew by pretty quick. <laughs> the lords sit back in their chairs, surprised, saying, but you claimed you could buy no weapons. I can buy mining machinery. Do you realize that a power mole can tunnel the distance to Paraz in perhaps 30 days? I can buy explosives. No problem there. <laughs> Drek spat on the floor. Why did we not think of this ourselves? We need not have performed that old Epicene's elaborate rigmarole. <laughs> what old Epicene, asked Hack? What elaborate rigmarole? No matter, no matter, Drek dismissed. Asking the cost. So do you think both... Oh, you already know. But perhaps both societies are putting this on just to scam the off-worlders? Oh, you'll see. Milton goes to his information box, also known as a computer, where he dials up holograms of several models, eventually settling on one that will cost 300,000 credits. However, they'll also need explosives, maintenance crews, mechanics, technicians, some engineers, a few other personnel, buildings to house them all, some more basic infrastructure, like, you know, sewers. Sewers, maybe a... School or two. School, maybe a bank. <laughs> maybe a hotel. Maybe a hotel. Spaceport. <laughs> Plus 10% to Zodiac Control Incorporated. <laughs> All told, around half a million credits. We will declare a special tax, declared Lord Aufia, and it will cost none of us a great deal. <laughs> Milton asks for a bank draft, stating that he'll head to Wylandia immediately to set the events in motion. He receives the bank draft, and immediately flies to Peraz, where he meets with the Sabo Dukes and declares, I observed the recent battle. While I was much impressed by Sabo tactics, I can see they will never defeat the Frones. Agreed, said Duke Gasman, and why? Because they refuse to fight. They are dodgers, dancers. They run this way and that. They hide among the rocks. Milton asks them, what would be your reaction to a scheme? for blowing Grangali into the sea. The Sabbles are intrigued, so Milton tells them it will cost a considerable amount of money, but far less than an equally effective arsenal of weapons. Duke Bodo immediately replies that money is no object, considering the worthwhile purpose, and Milton begins outlining the very same scheme he just proposed to the Frones. Of course. We quickly cut to Earth, where Edgar Zarius, 46% owner of Zodiac Control Incorporated, is looking over the requisition forms from Cordis. He places a quick video call to Luzianne Ludlow, the other owner, and she expresses surprise that Milton hasn't failed completely. Ending the phone call, Edgar Zarius gloats to himself, saying, quote, 
Hack had rejected the Sable contract, disapproved of the Fronis contract. Lusianne had ridiculed both. And now both contracts had been demonstrated sound conservative ventures. <laughs> oh yeah, conservative. Edgar Zarius, well pleased with himself, signed the requisitions and tucked it into the outslot. We cut back to Cordis, where the mining rigs have arrived, and Milton has a very busy couple of weeks getting everything set up. The crews all arrive and get settled, and the tunneling soon begins, amounting to roughly a mile a day. Quote, Milton spent half the time in Fronis, half in Sabo, conferring with the grandees of the two cities. Both groups were very much impressed by the efficiency of Zodiac management, and Hack was held in great esteem. <laughs> Thirty-five days after the tunneling begins, the Frones tunnel is complete, and demolition charges are laid beneath the Sabo city of Paraz. Three days later, the Sabol tunnel is complete, and destruction charges are set <laughs> beneath the city of Grangali. The Frones are overjoyed, lords arguing amongst themselves about who will be the one to push the button. Milton claims that honor for himself, however, saying detonation time will be mid-morning, the day after tomorrow, in case anyone wishes to station himself where he can visit the event, perhaps from the shore of the Merrydew Estuary or Kicking Horse Ridge. Sometime later, he heads to Paraz and presents the same timetable to the Sabbles. Mm-hmm. So he's just going to destroy both cities, and then the two have to join together to rebuild yep. one joint city. The next day, Milton evacuates the tunneling crews and all the Zodiac offices back to the city of Saprissa, passing the night himself inside the Merlin, which is part high along the cliffs of Opal Mountain. The sun rises, Milton enjoys the view, and around mid-morning takes the air car above Grand Galley, finding a city mostly deserted since everyone went to the hills to watch the destruction of Paraz. <laughs> mostly deserted. Without ceremony, Milton hits the button marked Grand Galley, and a wasteland south of the city explodes in a massive eruption of dirt, trees, and plants. And then there's another explosion, a hundred yards closer to the city. And another. And another. And, another. and what residents are left in Grand Galley witness the explosive destructions growing ever closer, and they flee. Oh, okay. Until eventually the explosions reach Grand Galley itself. So they gave them warning. Yeah. All right, that's cool. Milton next flies out to Paraz, where he hits the button marked Paraz, mm -hmm. <laughs> and watches the explosions sprout from nearby mud flats and explode closer and closer, giving those residents also time to flee. Mm -hmm. The Frones watch with mixed feelings, because they witness survivors escaping instead of everyone being killed. <laughs> they have mixed feelings about that, huh? <laughs> to quote, Lord Drek gave a grunt of disgust. Not satisfactory. I will have a word with that blustering earth man. <laughs> Look, Lord Alfie appointed. There, he lands in his sky car. Let us hear what excuses he offers. If they are unsatisfactory, I suggest we kill him outright. He impresses me unfavorably. <laughs> when Milton approaches, the Frones yell at him for allowing so many Sables to escape. Seems to be the case, said Hack. Well, at least we have removed an outrage to civilized sensibilities from the landscape. <laughs> that disgusting festering pet is gone. Ridiculous, thundered Alfia. We are not impressed by such petty foggery. The city means nothing. It was little worse than Grand Galley. <laughs> in this connection, I am in a position to bring you some news, said Hack. Mm. He quickly reports that Grand Galley is now a crater. <laughs> and quote, 
The explosions were planned and executed so as to warn the entire population, to allow everyone to evacuate their unhealthy, substandard hovel. <laughs> their giant shithole. But what of our memorials, our fetishes, our regalia? What about our fancy hats? Their flouncy pirate outfits. All gone, said Hack. However, if I may interpose an outsider's point of view, it was largely obsolete. In the new city which Zodiac Control will help you build, these would be considered little more than barbaric survivals. Aww. Mementos of a rather grotesque period in your development. That's a bummer. Drek heaved a great sigh. You are very cheerful, but it was not your city that was blown up. Who is to pay for this new city you speak of, Zodiac Control? <laughs> Why not the Sobbles, suggested Hack. After all, they destroyed the old one. Mm. He goes on to say that the mining operations were able to form giant obsidian blocks that now can be used to build new cities, or city, since mm. the time is ripe to forget old animosities. Emerge. Kind of like you predicted. Mm-hmm. Oh, and by the way, some very rich ore deposits were discovered underground on Sabol territory, which will finance the construction. Lovely. He posits a scheme where the Sable ore will pay for a city the Frones will live in, essentially plundering them, looting their sweet, sweet resources for gain. Oh, that's definitely a way to convince them. Heading to Sable, Milton outlines the same scheme, saying here's how to victimize the Frones. Request a merger, a joint amalgamation of your two countries to form a single political entity, managed naturally by Zodiac. Of course. Then, when the wealth pours in from the Fronus mines, half the money must be used to Sable profit. And so we cut to one week later, where Milton takes Lords Drek and Ophia, as well as Dukes Gasman and Bodo, in the Merlin air car over the mountains and into Parnassus. A maiden in a gauzy white gown came forth to inquire their purposes in landing, and Hack requested an audience with Cyril Dibden. They are led into a garden where maidens serve sweet, fragrant cakes and soft, sweet wine. And then Cyril Dibden shows up, quote, smiling with pained disapproval at the sight of his guests. <laughs> so would I. Milton announces the union of Fronus and Sabo, to which Cyril congratulates the group and immediately demands wine to celebrate. <laughs> of course. Milton tells him that the party is there to study Parnassus, saying, We hope to do something similar when we rebuild. And goes on to say that the Frones and Sables will probably be spending a great deal of time around Parnassus. You know, to make amends for being bad neighbors for so long. Because <laughs> that's how you become good neighbors, by ingratiating yourselves. Sure, by spending more time together. And more time. And more. Cyril Dibden takes Milton aside for a peaceful walk among the banks of some ponds, where he frowns to declare, At great cost, I built a border control to isolate myself from these cutthroats. Yeah, I don't see this working out too well. <laughs> Not so loud, warned Hack. They're on their good behavior. Don't antagonize them. They'll tunnel under the border with their new mining equipment and break up into your very bedroom. Ho oh. Dibden gives Milton a look and tells him he doesn't like his attitude. <laughs> but Milton responds, it's no less than he deserves. Since he wrote both contracts for Zodiac and Argus. Oh, yeah, and that makes sense. And set things up so his two neighbors would try to kill each other. Cyril Dibden denies the charge. But Milton replies, your motives? I assume you want to extend Parnassus to the sea. I assume that you resent the necessity of guarding your border. Mm, who doesn't? 
assume as well cyril replies that i resent the very existence of these animals mm -hmm. these callous murderers these gross and odorous lackwits i would expect nothing less they're zodiac clients said hack and they would never tunnel under the border of another zodiac client Ooh, that's an assumption cyril declares that this is pure extortion yeah it is to which milton replies when you run with the wolves, don't complain of sore feet. Oh, is that a saying? It is now. <laughs> and he makes a sales pitch, saying, quote, A Zodiac contract can be of benefit to you. We will save you money, discourage marauding and tunneling, <laughs> and in general, relieve you of drudgery. Oh, I don't think that was their problem. <laughs> <laughs> the frustrated Cyril Dibden starts blurting out a rejection of the proposal, but then stops short paces around the room a bit, and eventually agrees to give Zodiac a try. Yeah, they have no choice. And so, for the final scene of our novella, we cut to Earth, where Edgar Zarius and Luzianne Ludlow are congratulating Milton Hack for his success. Edgar declares he couldn't have done a better job himself. While Luzianne re replies, Hack is paid to do his job. If he didn't, we'd fire him. Oh my god. She's the worst. Luzianne stands to leave, but then glances at Milton and says she can give him a lift from Farallon if he's done meeting with Edgar. <laughs> but before Milton can answer, Edgar says actually he does need to see Milton because a peculiar situation has arisen that Milton may be needed for. Oh. But Milton interjects, saying if it's all the same to both of you, I'll leave by myself. <laughs> Luzianne departs, and in her wake, Edgar says to Milton, I'm afraid there's something about you, Hack, that rubs Miss Ludlow the wrong way. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that, Milton replied, and we reach the final sentences of our story. Quote, You'll probably be well advised to keep out of her way as much as possible. She's a capricious young woman, and, well, there's no point in causing her vexation or whatever it is that you do. <laughs> Naturally not, said Hack. Good afternoon, Mr. Zarius. <laughs> and so we end the same way we started, with... Two 46% share owners at each other's throats, and Hack holding the remaining interest between them in an uneasy position. <laughs> and actually, with that ending, I was expecting that there might be another uh, Jack Vance story about Zodiac Control Incorporated at some point. Yeah. I have yet to find one, though. Oh, yeah. And I've read most of his short stories, but I can't guarantee I've read them all. There might be another one out there. Yeah, there's so few, and they're not in print anymore. Yeah, so what did you think of The Man from Zodiac? Yeah, it was fun. Oh, yeah. I, I'm a big fan of the Frones because they're the kind of people that I aspire to be <laughs> in course. life. Uh-huh. <laughs> which is why I'm actually getting my nose encrusted with jewels tomorrow. Oh, I've already done mine. I could see that from those jewels that are there. Sparkling, sparkling in the light. Resplendent. Oh. So there is one thing about this story, uh, one little line that I was a little annoyed that I had to get rid of. Okay. What happened was there was a quote in part one that I was really hoping would pan out into something, and it turned out it was just a throwaway line. Do you remember when Milton was in the offices of Zodiac Control, right after he'd returned from a couple months soliciting new business? Mm-hmm. And... The Frones came out of Edgar's office. It was the first time he'd seen them. Yep. And the secretary said, what ruffians. Mm -hmm. The throwaway line that I didn't put into part one was when Milton looked at her and replied by saying, you should see their wives. 
Oh, wow. And that was the disappointment that I had because we never got to find out about Fronis <gasps> and Sable wives. Or women. And that's the thing because I have a suspicion from the context of the story that the women were also engaging in the battle and were mm-hmm. just as involved as the men, but none of them were actually specifically stated to be. Oh, man. Missed opportunity. It really is. And to be fair, this is a novella, not a novel. So Mm. it's going to be a little bit shorter and there's going to be details that'll be missed. But that was a big detail that was missed. Mm -hmm. Because I would have loved to have seen their wives. If the men were that impressive with their 24 dreads and multiple Uh... swords, cutlasses and daggers. Yeah. And Jack Vance generally isn't particularly sexist for his era anyway. Like he... He's written some pretty interesting, badass women in his books. Oh, yeah. Especially in his fantasy, though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in his science fiction, women don't always... Uh... No, they don't always fare so well, but... Mm. Oh, what is that? I think it was the um, Demon Princes where <laughs> there was that society where the <laughs> the older women would trot out the younger women to lure out the men, and then the older women would abscond with the men. That's right. I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> they were the Darsh, weren't they? It may have, in fact, been the Darsh. That's correct. <laughs> well, Jack Vance is our favorite, and I'm very glad that we're ending season one with one of his tales. Mm-hmm. We'll probably do the same for season two, to be honest. I enjoy the way he writes. Oh, his language, his prose. That's why I had so many quotes. Mm-hmm. I made this a two-parter so that we could have extra quotes. <laughs> Excellent. And thus ends The Man from Zodiac. And thus ends season one of Everett Book Club. Mm-hmm. And what a season it was. You can visit us online at www.everettbookclub.com. Or email us at everettbookclub at hotmail.com. We have a Facebook group of Everett Book Club and... Our little used Twitter is at Everett Book Club. To be honest, I might get rid of our Twitter for next season. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of Twitter, to be honest. (laughs) I prefer visual over. Well. Ironically, I prefer pictures over words. It is ironic, considering our Instagram is amazing. Go to our Instagram. Look at our books. Gawk at our books. Marvel over our bookshelves. If you or your organization are developing an artificial intelligence, Marguerite and I are available to administer Turing tests. Please note, there is no guarantee of accuracy, efficacy, or professionalism. Ever. And if you know of any secondhand bookstores that deserve some love, email us and we'll give them a shout out. So, Marguerite, do we stay in our panic room wine cellar until we've run out of both panic and wine, or... Do we go out and face the AI that is definitely not menacing us? I don't know. What do we usually do with this sort of situation? Flamethrowers. Ah, gun swords. RPGs. Righteous indignation. (laughs) Fuck yeah. Let's take this robot down. After we finish this bottle. That's a very good call. We are now on winter break. We'll be back for the season two premiere with a very special episode just in time for Valentine's Day. Until then, this has been a very good glass of wine. Pour some more. Agreed. <laughs>